I'm sure glad you're here. And if you want to open your Bibles along with me, we are in Numbers chapter 3. But I want to mention that we have a prophecy conference coming up. It's January 24th to the 25th. It's a Friday to Saturday. So for a lot of people uh, where it's not during the week, it might make it easier for some of you to be able to get off and and, uh, be there for Friday and Saturday. It's going to be a great conference. And we have a sign-up sheet in the foyer. Now, you can register online, but the purpose of the sign-up sheet is if you would like to have a room to stay overnight, I um, work out a, a, a good deal. I'm a wheeler and dealer when it comes to hotels, and I try to give it, get us uh, good hotels for a good price. So sign up if you'd like to go to the conference, so I have your name down there. And, um, you know, we have New Year coming up, so we can make New Year's resolutions. And my New Year's resolution is to keep this year's New Year's resolution. And, uh, you know, we normally keep them for at least... Actually, we don't keep them. It's just, it's just in our mind we make these resolutions. Just, well, you know, when the New Year starts, I'm going to do this and this, and I'm not going to do that and that. And usually... Anyway. Anyway, so I encourage you to sign up. I agree. I agree. And... Um, I know most of you have enjoyed the uh, longer daylight. I mean, uh, on last Saturday was, uh, not yesterday, but last Saturday prior to that was the winter solstice. That was the shortest day of the year. And from that time on, we have been increasing 43 seconds of daylight. So, um, you know, so I'm sure you've all noticed the great daylight hour we've had. Okay, let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and there's nothing more wonderful than to have the opportunity to handle your word. And I pray, Lord, as we go through this portion of Scripture, that it would speak to us and encourage us that we might draw closer to you and realize the importance of following the living God and not the dictates of this world or even our own heart, because our hearts are deceptive beyond knowing, beyond finding out. And so, Father, I pray that you would anoint and use me to minister to these, your precious people, I pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. You know, it's interesting. Science has made almost a full circle. When science and the scientific method first came on the scenes, if you had true faith, it seemed to be taking us away. But as science has continued and continued and continued, it's bringing us right back. Like, for instance, the whole concept of uh, evolution is becoming more and more, even among academics, a fallacy. You have many um, very well-known scientists that have accepted what they call, um, what do they call it? Intelligent design. Of course, they don't want to recognize who that intelligent designer is, but they call it intelligent design. But the reality is that there is a designer, and his name is Yahweh. You know, it's so interesting. You have... Like, for instance, Maxwell Planck. He came up with Planck's constant, and, um, it, which led to what is called quantum mechanics. And some of it is very accurate. Some of it's very interesting. But a whole lot of it is just a bunch of bogus. Did you know science changes every 50 years? Look it up. Every 50 years, science changes. I mean, in, in, uh, not that many, well, quite a while ago, maybe... 150 years ago, 200 years ago, if, if you had certain problems, you might go in to see your physician and they'd drill a hole in your head. And uh, sometimes they'd bleed you. 
you know, in order to make you feel better. My point is that we can't allow the outside world and all of their teachings and philosophies and thoughts to interfere with our relationship with the Lord. This is the Word of God. This is true. And no matter what science or, or the philosophies of men might do to try to discredit this book, this book is the true Word of God. As a matter of fact, it is so accurate that you even have a group of archaeologists, I might have mentioned this before, who are not believers, but they know the Bible is true, and they're called biblical archaeologists. And so when they look for certain finds and certain digs, they use the Bible in order to get to the proper location. But they don't believe the Bible is necessarily the Word of God, the man. So we have to understand this is God's Word, and so everything we read in it, according to its own teaching, is for our benefit, for our learning. That through endurance of what we're reading and learning through the Scriptures, we might have hope. And what is that hope? That hope is in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, here's the point. From the time you're born, you're moving towards death. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you get to be my age, and I know there are a couple people older than me. That's about it. But you get to be my age, and you realize that your physical life doesn't have that much longer to go. And if that's all there was, how sad it would be. But to understand that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord and have a whole new life in Him is absolutely exciting. And even in relationship to the rapture, they're taken from the Latin word raptos, to, to be caught up. Even in relationship to the rapture, those of us who are left and, and remain and are alive, we're going to be caught up together with the dead in Christ who are going to be raised to meet the Lord in the air. And the Lord is so gracious that he laid out in detail the prophecies that we can look at that show the nearness of his coming, that we might lift up our heads, Scripture says, says and, to, and to be ready. I mean, some of you probably read in the news about all the anti-Semitism that's taking place in New York, and uh, they had video of... Um, Guys coming and attacking Hasidic Jews and beating them. Well, last night, um, a, a fellow broke into a rabbi's home where they were celebrating Hanukkah with a machete, and he stabbed and seriously injured a number of people, then went to another house, and then finally to a synagogue. Anti-Semitism is growing rapidly in this nation. And understand, what do they do? What do the, the Jewish people do that cause such hatred? They're just minding their own business, doing their work. Understand, it's spiritual. It's satanic. And then you realize what's happening in the world. Of course, we don't realize what's happening in the world because the only thing we see on news is politics. Impeachment, impeachment, impeachment. That's all you read about. Now, the reality is there are things happening. Did you know that they had to evacuate Netanyahu from Neshkalon when he was giving a speech because of a rocket attack trying to take him out? Well, no, we don't know about that. Do we understand that China, Russia, and Iran are having joint military operations? Do you realize that all the nations that are prophesied in Ezekiel 38 to be gathered together to come against Israel from the north, they're there. They're there, ready to go. And Scripture tells us that they're coming in for booty, in other words, for, for material possessions. 
Well, the thing is, Israel has the largest deposit of natural gas, and now they have found some of the largest deposits of oil. And Israel denied Russia the ability to run a pipeline to the Mediterranean Sea to Europe, which would have given them a great you know, um, market for their natural gas. And so everything is there. They're on the mountains of Israel right now, all of her enemies. And they're ready to come against her. And so we have to understand that we're living in those days that the Bible talks more about than any other topic or any other event in history. Jesus Christ is coming back for his church, for us, for you and I. Now, here's the thing. Knowing this, we cannot be like the Thessalonians. Paul had to write his second letter to the Thessalonians because in his first letter he was telling them about the fact that Jesus was going to one day come back for his church, and so they all went up on a hilltop waiting for him. And so he wrote the second letter to the Thessalonians saying, get down off the hilltop and do the work of the ministry. I'm paraphrasing it terribly, but that's basically what it's all about. So we have to understand that as believers, recognizing the nearness of God's return, very near, it's not a, you know, an opportunity for us to just sit around and say, come Jesus, come Jesus. It should motivate us to be off of the hilltop, off of the mountaintop, and sharing our faith and doing the work of the ministry that God called us to. Who's going to do the work of the ministry if it's not us? We're God's chosen people, chosen since the foundations of the world were laid, to be holy and righteous, and to be his witness. Now, the question we almost ask ourselves, and the reason I say ask ourselves, because only we can give a truthful answer to this question. Is my faith simply a religious expression, or is my faith an intimate relationship with my God? You know, a lot of people, what they call faith is just religious expression. Well, I go to church every Sunday. Well, I read four fingers of, Bi- of my Bible, you know, every, every night. And uh, I do this and I do that and I do this and I do that. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with doing those things, but if you're doing it simply as a religious expression because it makes you feel confident about yourself, you're missing the whole point. It's relationship. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But then the son sent the Holy Spirit to us, to believers, to dwell in our heart, our cardiac, our inner man for the very purpose of being able to have communion with God. What a wonderful thing it is. And you know, we should be in communion with God all the time, every minute of the day. But the point is, it's wonderful to take time because God's word not only recommends it, but commands it, to take time every day to be alone with the Lord. To be, some of us can't be alone with our own thoughts. And here's something that would be very difficult for you. I challenge you to take time every day to spend time in prayer and in the word. Now here's the challenge, without your cell phone. Do you realize what a disturber cell phones are? Have you ever, ever been in a conversation with someone and you're right in the middle of the conversation and it's like... Here's the point. When the phone rang, you just didn't answer it. But when a text goes off, you have to answer. 
It's compelling. You've got to go to it. The point I'm getting at is we need to spend time with the Lord. We need to be in intimate fellowship and communion with Him. He's our Father. He's our Creator. He's our Redeemer. And so we have to have that time with Him. You know, um, the old-timers used to call this full relationship with the Lord sanctification. The word sanctify means to be set apart. But to be set apart, you have to be set apart from something to something. And you and I as believers are supposed to be set apart from the world unto the Lord. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't mean that we're set apart from the world in the sense we don't live in the world. We live in the world. You have to go to work. You have to pay your taxes. You have to buy groceries. You have to clean up. You have to da 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 We have work. To, you know, so we have to live in the world. But that is what Scripture is teaching us, that even though we're in the world, we should be different than the world. We should live in such a way that people would see the light of Christ in us in everything that we do that would encourage them to make that turn of faith. Do you realize how many people are depressed in the world? And the interesting thing is this. Look it up online. You know where depression has its highest rates? I'm talking about what they call, what they call clinical depression. In the most economically privileged countries. The countries that have the most have the most depression. Well, wait, wait, wait. That doesn't make sense. If happiness comes from receiving all kinds of material possessions and having this and having that, if that's what brings happiness, well, wait a second. Why would the most privileged countries have the greatest amount of depression? It's because that's not where happiness comes from. Happiness comes from Jesus Christ. Happiness comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so... When we read portions of Scripture like this, we have to understand that the Old Testament was never meant to be a bunch of rules and regulations. People try to separate the Old Testament from the New Testament. In fact, there are even certain preachers whose names I won't mention that they believe that Christians shouldn't even study the Old Testament. The Old Testament was for the Jews, the New Testament is for Christians. And then there are some that even go so far to say if you're a Gentile, if you're not a Jew, uh, uh, if, you're, if you're a Gentile believer, not a Jewish believer, you should only study the epistles of Paul because they were written to the Gentiles. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. What? They're missing the whole point. The entire Bible was written to believers, Jew or Gentile. It was written to believers. So if you look at the Old Testament, or if anyone looks at the Old Testament as being a bunch of rules and regulations, they're missing the point. It is a roadmap to have relationship with God. And we know this to be the fact because that's why the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but especially the Pharisees, had such a hard time with Jesus. Now, you know, we use that term all the time. I'm going to explain it to you. The Pharisees would have been uh, very legalistic, they stood on the word of God. They believed that every dot and jot and tittle of the, of the law should have been kept. They were really into the Bible. The Sadducees would be like the liberals today. Well, you know, you can't take it for this and can't take it for that. The Pharisees believed that there was life after death. The Sadducees didn't. They just, you know, kind of like the liberals of today. But anyway, Jesus had a hard time, especially with the Pharisees, because he was telling them, hey, you guys are missing the point. It's not a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's about relationship. This is the roadmap to come into fellowship with your God. And so they had a hard time. Did you know he didn't wash his hands? 
No, but he healed 5,000 or fed 5,000. You know what I'm saying? They were missing the point. And we have to be careful that as we study the Word of God, we look at what is God saying to me? What's the Lord trying to show us besides just what is written on those uh, you know, ch- pages in those chapters? What's he trying to show us through it? So let's look at chapter 3, starting off with verses 1 through 4. Now these are the records of Aaron and Moses when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. And these are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab, the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithmar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests. They were the only ones that were the anointed priests at that time, whom he consecrated to minister as priests. Nadab and Abihu had died before the Lord when they offered profane fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. We'll talk about that in a minute. And they had no children. So Eleazar and Ithmar ministered as priests in the presence of Aaron, their father. So we know the first two, Nadab and Abihu, were disqualified. In fact, they were disqualified because they were burned up with fire for, because they disobeyed the word of God. And so now we have um, Abihu and, and Eleazar have taken their place. We're told in verse 1 that this is the account of Aaron and Moses, and yet we find that only Aaron's sons are mentioned in this particular uh, portion of Scripture. Now, according to, if you take notes, First Chronicles 23 and verses uh, 14 and 15, you're going to find that um, Moses' sons were considered part of the Levites, the tribe of Levi, but they were not considered priests. Only Aaron's sons were priests. And the sons of Moses, the man of God, were, were counted. This is in First uh, Chronicles 23, 14, to be part of the tribe of Levi. And now Moses' sons that are mentioned here are Gershom and Eliezer. And I say Eliezer because Eleazar is the son of uh, Aaron, and Eleazar is the son of Moses. They sound very familiar. If you look at your Bibles, they're spelt different. Now, Gershon was the oldest of the two sons born to Moses in the land uh, of the Midians by Zephorah. And um, Eleazar was the second son born to Moses uh, in Midian by Zephorah. And um, they were named because of Moses' despair of where he was, and yet also a praise to the Lord. In Exodus 18, 2 through um, uh, 4, it says this, One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become an alien in a foreign land. And Gershom means dispossession. He was dispossessed from his land. And the other was named Eleazar, Uh, For he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Eleazar means God helps. And God does help. He helps us. Now, Gershom and Eleazar, uh, they had no other rank among the Levites other than all the other Levites. They were just one of the Levites. They weren't like Aaron's sons who were priests. There was a great difference. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because 
we find in Judges, because you notice there's not a lot of mention of Moses' sons uh, in a positive way when we get through uh, you know, uh, Numbers and, and uh, Exodus. I mean, uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means the second law. It's repeating the first law. But in Judges 18.30, um, we find that Moses' sons, if you want to read all through Judges 18.30, it's from the tribe of Dan. The tribe of Dan had their inheritance in the south, and they decided they wanted to go to the north because there was better land. Now, in our, when they went to the north, you had a separation between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The ten northern tribes were separated from Judah and Benjamin, which were the southern tribes. And because the northern tribes didn't want their people coming into the temple to worship God, thinking that they might go on the side of Judah and Benjamin, they decided they'd have their own God. And so in Dan, in fact, Bi and I, I think Ken and Don, and I don't know if Frank was there at that time too, we actually went to the idol of Baal in Dan. It's, it's, the site is still there. But anyway, they wanted to have priests to serve their idolatrous beliefs in the north. And so guess who they chose? The sons of Moses. They chose the sons of Moses. Thinking, well, it's not Aaron's sons, but we have Moses' sons. And so Moses' sons, can you imagine Moses' great-great-grandchildren serving as idolatrous priests? And one of the things that shows us, and we're going to get into this a little bit later, we have to understand that our children can't live on our faith. Our children have to have their own faith. And that's why we have to instruct them in the way they should go. Now, as far as Nadab and Abihu, we know that they died because they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. See, God's commands are not suggestions. God's commands are not debatable. They are for the purpose of worship and fellowship with him. All of God's commands are to draw us closer to him, not push us away. Oh, well, being a Christian, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. You know? no, no, that's not what it's about. All of God's commands draw us closer to him. Wow, I'm in relationship with God. It's so awesome to be his. Every day I wake up and I feel his presence. I have purpose in life. Now, that doesn't mean you won't ever make mistakes. As Pastor Frank Jr. talks about, every one of us have those hours of self-loathing where we're thinking, oh, Lord, what have I done? Lord, I've been so unfaithful. But for the most part, as a believer, you should sense belonging to God. You should sense his presence. You should sense your love for him and his love for you. His love never ceases and never fails. We should understand that. And this is why in Revelation 22, verses 18 through 19, it says, for I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. It's talking about the book of Revelation. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part in the book of life from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. So, what 
Aaron's sons were trying to do, Nadab and Abihu, they were trying to repeat the work of God with their own hands. And um, as a matter of fact, in Leviticus 9.24, it says, Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offerings, the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and they fell face down. And I believe that that's one of the things that um, Abihu and Eleazar were trying, or Nadab and, and, um, Nadab and Abihu were trying to do, is they were trying to repeat this work of God. They were thinking, oh, hey, you know what? Let's offer this incense on, on the altar. Because uh, remember, you would take coals and put certain kinds of incense on it to put it on the altar, the golden, the brazen altar, offering up the sacrifice to God. And they wanted to have the same thing happen, where fire would come down and consume everything and all that. So they said, hey, I got an idea. Let's add this to it. Maybe this is going to make it better. Maybe we'll see God work. And they were consumed. Fire did come down, but it consumed them. And the reason it did is that God doesn't want us to try to imitate his work. He wants us to simply worship and serve him and let God be God and do his work himself. You know, we are evangelical Christians. And that means that we have the responsibility of sharing our faith. That's what evangelism is. But you can't go out there saying, boy, I'll tell you what, I've got the right ticket now. I know exactly how to lead people to Christ. You know, I have this technique and I have that technique. I know exactly how. Wait, 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 wait. Are you going to be like Nadab and Abihu and try to offer your own fire to the Lord? The reality is this. Every one of us should be evangelists, but we should just be praying, Lord, lead me. Lord, show me. Lord, give me the words to say. Because you might think you have a certain technique that you've gotten down to share your faith with people, but it might be just your technique. Maybe that isn't what they need to hear. Sometimes you can offer something to people, and it just blows their minds. And you think, you're thinking, what, what did I say? It's because what the Lord put on your heart, and it was what they needed. And I've told you this account a number of times, but I remember walking through the mall some years ago, and this, uh, you know, this woman ran up to me. She goes, Pastor Thomas, Pastor Thomas. And I turned around and said, oh, hi, how you doing? I had no idea who she was. I had no idea who she was. Hey, how you doing? And she, and she was telling me, she said, you know that talk you had with me? She said, it changed my life. She said, it just changed my life. And I said, praise God. And I really was praising God because I don't even remember the talk. The point I'm trying to get at is sometimes the way you're able to serve the Lord the most effectively is when you don't plan things, you just let him do it. Let God be God and try not to do his work for him. In serving the Lord, we must be submissive to him, not doing it our own way. In Numbers 3, go to verse 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and present them before Aaron the priest, that they may serve him. Notice, they were not called to be priests, the rest of the tribe of Levi. They were called to serve Aaron and his sons. They were called to serve the priest. And in the same way, all believers called to a particular fellowship 
are to serve in that fellowship. It might not be Sunday school. It might not be Bible study. It might be just doing projects around the church. Do you understand what I'm saying? What we're looking at here is they were, they were to serve the physical upkeep of the tabernacle. We're going to find as we go on that there were some that had this responsibility and that responsibility. And so the same thing is true of our church. This is where we gather together to worship the Lord. And we should be doing it together. We look around and we see, oh, this needs to be done, that needs to be done. little plug here. On January 11th, we're having a work bee. Be there or be square. That's an old 60s saying. Anyway, but you need to be there to help out. There's so many things that need to be done. And uh, John and Patrick are the two elders that are in charge of buildings and grounds, so you might want to see them and, and talk about things that need to be done. We've got a ton of stuff. Just a little advertisement there. Okay. Now, verse 7. And they shall attend to the needs... And they shall, uh, shall attend to his needs, Aaron, and the needs of the whole congregation before the tabernacle of meeting to do the work of the tabernacle. Also, they shall attend to all the furnishings of the tabernacle of meeting. Now, it's interesting they're to attend to all the furnishings. We're going to find as we go on that every one of the Levite clans had different responsibilities. There are some Levites whose total responsibility was the tent pegs. And you might think, well, I, I want to carry the Ark of the Covenant. I don't want to carry tent pegs. What a low job that is. Brothers and sisters, if you didn't have the tent pegs, the whole thing would fall down. So sometimes what we might think is the lowest position you can possibly have maybe is the most important. I think that's something we really need to think about. Okay, um, And to the needs of the children of Israel to do the work of the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites, the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are, to, are, they are given entirely to him from among the children of Israel. So you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall attend to their priesthood. But the outsider who comes near will be put to death. And you know, the thing is, we're all Christians. We're all called to be evangelists. We're all called to be high priests of the Lord. But the fact is, God does set pastors aside for the purpose of presenting the work of the ministry in the sense of presenting the Word of God, of preaching the Word of God. And this is the reason any pastor who does not take presenting the Word of God seriously shouldn't be standing behind a pulpit. Let me share something with you. In 2 Timothy... Chapter 2 and verses 15 and 16, it says, Be diligent. And now, you have to understand that Timothy, Timothy and Titus were written to pastors. That's who Paul wrote them to, those letters to, to pastors. Be diligent to present yourself a proof of God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. Listen, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. There's so many things that have come into the church that have distracted pastors. Oh, you had the holy laughter movement. Oh, you had this movement. Oh, you had that movement. You know, you had, you know, all these different movements have come into the church 
And it's not what a pastor is called to do. He's called to teach the word of God. That's all a pastor is called to do. I'm not called to be your priest. We are a royal priesthood. You're responsible to God. I'm not responsible for you to God. But I am responsible to present the word of God to you and allow the Holy Spirit to apply it to your hearts. You understand? And that is, you know, it's kind of like a college professor. A college professor can get up there and teach, and you might have some people who just take down all the facts enough to pass an exam, but they, they don't take it to heart. They don't understand it. They don't, you know, dig into it. And so the same thing is true. I'm presenting the Word of God, but you have to allow the Holy Spirit to work it in your heart and in your life. Verse 11. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now behold, I myself have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens a womb among the children of Israel. Therefore the Levites shall be mine, because all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. Well, as I mentioned, as a church, we're all priests. If you take notes, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen people. This is talking to all believers. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. See, the purpose of a priest is to be an intermediary between God and man. Now, we aren't intermediaries in the sense that we can give absolution and forgiveness of sins or anything like that, but how we are a mediator uh, is, is as evangelists, we're able to go to people and say, this is what God teaches. This is the salvation God offers. This is the way you... So in that sense, we do mediate between God and man, bringing them to Christ. Now, remember, the Lord chose the Levites because their obedience and zeal to him. You know why? In fact, if you take notes, write down Exodus 32. And um, we're looking at verses 26 through 29. I'm not going to read them, but what it was about is the children of Israel fell into idolatry. And so the Lord spoke to Moses and said, I want you to call volunteers to strap on swords and go out and kill all those people that are committing idolatry. And the only ones that came to Moses were the Levites. And they strapped on their swords and they went out and killed thousands of their own who were fallen to idolatry because God knew the plague that it would take through the whole camp of Israel if they didn't stop it as a cancer. And so because of that, the Levites were chosen. I know some of us, when we look back on those accounts and we think, that's so brutal. I mean, they went out with swords and killed their own people. You know, it's hard for us to understand, and I don't know how to explain it to you other than at that time it was the beginning of man's relationship with God and, and, the, and the Word being presented in a pure way that when you had idolatry come in, it had to be cut out. And, and I can give you a little bit of an example. Like, for instance, in our fellowship, one of the responsibilities not only do I have as, a, as the pastor, but all of you have, is to root out any cancer that might come in. And, for instance, some years ago, there was a fellow who came to church and, and uh, seemed to be loving the message and everything else, 
And he came up to me afterwards, and, and he was uh, a Jesus-only guy. He didn't believe in the Trinity. And I told him right out, I said, look it. I said, the Bible clearly teaches the Trinity. Our church stands on the Trinity, and we will not allow this kind of teaching to take place in the church. He never came back. There was no fight. There was no arguing. There was no you know, uncomfortable encounter. He just realized he wasn't going to be allowed to spread his false do- doctrine in our church, and he never came back. That's the kind of Levites we need in the church today, that are to strap on the sword of the Spirit and the Word of God and to go out and to stop false teaching, not only in our fellowship, but anywhere we see it. We need to take a stand against it, not in an arrogant way. You know, so many people are, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm standing for the Word of God, and, and they just turn everybody off. What does the Bible say about a soft answer? It turns away wrath. So you have people, and you just give the soft answer of the Word of God. But this is what the Word of God says. It's going to turn away wrath. Because you have to understand, the Lord doesn't call us to come to him on our terms. His purpose is always reconciliation of sinful man to himself. You know how many people the Lord desires to be saved and to come to him? How many? All. He wants all to be saved and come to him. Everyone. There's no one excluded. And therefore, we have that responsibility as his disciples to share the truth that people might come into faith in Jesus Christ. Because we have to understand, anyone who experiences salvation experiences a joy and a peace beyond understanding, and in the end, eternal life and all the glories of heaven with God. Read about the new heaven and the new earth. It's absolutely mind-blowing. And when you read about the new heaven and the new earth and the end of Revelation, understand as a believer, you're going to be there. And you're not going to be there in Nirvana, just part of the collective. Oh, oh, yeah. You're going to be there as you. Understand, you will never lose your self-identity. And that's why Scripture says, we'll know and be known. Like, if Vi and I both were raptured, or I died, and then she was raptured, and we got to heaven, Vi isn't going to come up to me and say, you know, you're familiar to me? just can't quite place you. She's going to know who I am. We're going to know and be known. We're, our self-identity, you're always going to be you. Because understand the importance of that. You cannot truly worship God in spirit and in truth, even in heaven, if you're not you. If you're just part of a collective, you can't have that individual relationship, which is what God desires of his people. Now, under the new covenant, the Lord doesn't desire for us to only dedicate our firstborn males, but to dedicate all our children to the Lord. And that's an important thing, because in our fellowship, and in a lot of Christian fellowships, we don't baptize infants, because baptism is for the believer. Believe and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So believing is a prerequisite to being baptized. But what we do do is dedicate our children, which we find in Scripture, That's found in Scripture as as something that we as believers are supposed to do because our children are not capable 
of making decisions. You have a little baby in your hand, you have a two-year-old or a toddler, you're walking around. They can't make those kind of decisions. But we can dedicate them to the Lord. And when you dedicate your children to the Lord, what you're actually doing is making a commitment yourself to teach your children the Word of God and the things of God, to bring them up in the faith. And the reason we do it in church when we have infant or child dedication in church is because the whole church is responsible. Sunday school, Bible studies, you know, VBS, all the children's programs we have, plus your individual encouragement to them. How many of us even take time to talk to kids in the church that aren't our grandchildren or children? Do you understand what I'm saying? And I'm not saying, hey, you shouldn't be doing that, Buster, get off the railing. Now, if they're standing on a window ledge or something, yeah, that's one thing. But, I mean, to just say, hey, isn't Jesus good? Oh, so, I'm so glad you come to church here. I, I hope Sunday school was great. I hope you're growing in the Lord. We need to encourage our children in the Lord. It's our responsibility. In Jeremiah, we find out the importance of infant dedication. In Luke, we find out that Jesus himself was dedicated on the day of dedication to the Lord. And we find that beautiful verse in Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 through 14, where women were bringing their children to Jesus that he might bless them, that he might dedicate them. And the disciples said, Oh, get those kids away. This is for big people. It's one of the few times you find Jesus getting angry with his disciples. He said, Forbid them not. Because he said, They are the ones who are going to receive the kingdom of God. Let the kids come to me. Let the children come to me. And his disciples were rebuked. And we have to understand that God has no grandchildren. Do you understand that? If you're a child of God, your children aren't God's grandchildren. Every child has to come to a place where they make a decision for the Lord themselves. Now, there is what we call an age of accountability or an age of responsibility. The Jews call it bar mitzvah. And it's when a child reaches an age where they're able to make their own commitment to the Lord. And so understand, you know, what, what did we read in Psalms? It says that he takes the lambs in his arms. David, when he was talking about his dead son, remember he had a baby in a wrong way who died, and he said, you know, you can't come to me, but I'm going to go to you. David was saying he's in heaven. So any child below the age of accountability, now listen carefully, or any child who is incapable of making that kind of decision, when they die, they go to be with the Lord. There's no limbo. There's no purgatory. There's heaven. And so that's one of the reasons it's so important for us to raise our children in the Lord, to encourage them in the Lord. You know, when I look and I see families and I see people bringing children into the church, it blesses me. Like if you have a child and, and they say, Amen, <laughs> at the end, you know what? Hallelujah, because they're here. And they're praising God. Now, we do have a quiet room if they get a little bit, you know. <laughs> but you understand the point I'm making. We want our children to be here. We want our children to feel part of it. I love watching people come into church and the kids are running up the ramp to get into the church. I mean, what a horrible sight it would be to look out and see the kids going, oh, ah. And that's how it is in some churches. But we welcome our children. We want our children to be here. And so, as you read a portion like this, 
understand you are the Levites. You are the royal priesthood. You are those that are set apart to do the work of ministry. And therefore, we have the same requirements to put on robes of righteousness. Not physical robes, but robes of righteousness. And this is important. Listen carefully. I'm closing with this. The robes of righteousness we put on are not yours. Look at how good I am now. I've been doing such good things. I've been reading the Bible, you know, and I've been doing my prayers every day, and I look at how good I look in my robes of righteousness. No, those are filthy rags. That's what the Bible says. It's his robes of righteousness. Jesus, forgive me a sinner. Use me, Jesus. And he will. Because God is love. And in him is no darkness at all. And that love compels us to share our faith with everyone we come in contact with. Father, thank you for this portion of Scripture and the encouragement that it gives each one of us. And I pray, Father, that you would use it to not only minister to us, but allow us to minister to others. And so come by your Holy Spirit, Lord. If there are any here who are not saved, who are not born again of the Spirit, this would be the day of their salvation. All they simply need to do is say, God, forgive me a sinner. Take over my life. Simple as that. And Lord, those of us who are saved, but maybe we're not really doing the work of ministry as we should, I pray that you would help us to surrender because even surrender is a gift from you. Help us to surrender totally to you, Lord, that we might serve you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so I pray this and ask your blessing on each one who's here. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you, my dear friends.